Hello, and welcome to the podcast series, Disarming Injustice. I'm your host, Mallory Trapani, and today we're sitting down with Mallory Trapani. She's a student who's about to complete a class called Disarming Injustice, and we're all going to talk about her experiences and what she has learned from the class. So, Mallory, hello. We're so glad you're here. Hi, Mallory. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So let's get started by talking about what you've been reading with your class. You've been reading Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Before this class, had you ever thought about the United States as having a caste system? What exactly is a caste system and what exactly does it look like here in the U.S.? That's a great question. So Wilkerson's book was really eye-opening to me because, no, I had never thought about the U.S. having a caste system before. But once you see it, it totally changes my changes your perspective. A caste system is a social hierarchy based on heredity and not the actual traits of a person. So basically, you're born into a social position and you can't leave it no matter what. Once you know that definition, you can definitely apply it to race in the United States. Aside from reading cast, we have also watched a bunch of documentaries, gone to the Civil Rights Museum in Greensboro, virtually of course, and listened to other podcasts, including Oprah's Book Club podcast about, about cast. I have also been to the Civil Rights Museum before, and I've watched a few of the movies and docu- documentaries, but I have to tell you it was a completely different experience after having the knowledge that this is how the caste system functions. Now, to answer your question about what caste looks like in the U.S., I can tell you that you already know what it looks like. It's all around us in our everyday lives, no matter what caste you were born into. Today, you can see it in the criminal justice system, the healthcare systems, and housing across every state. In all the statistics that most of us already know about, like how much more likely black people are to get arrested arrested, or to die giving birth or the wealth gap that exists in our country, that's not, that's not just discrimination and racism, that's actually the caste system in action. The word that some people use, systemic racism, could just be replaced by the word caste. Wow, that's really powerful. I noticed you talked about being affected by caste no matter what caste you're in, and I think a lot of people think that a caste system only affects the people in the lowest caste. So in the U.S., that would be black people, but you're a white female in the upper class, so can you talk about how that affects you personally a little bit deeper? This class has forced me to do a lot of reflecting on my life and my experiences, and I can see that I was taught very different things in school, but yes, I think caste does affect me. It affects me both positively and negatively. It's unfortunate, but I do benefit from the caste system in a lot of ways. By creating inferior and superior groups of people, inherently, the superior group is going to have privileges. To me, I can see my privilege in the way that my family has been able to accumulate wealth for generations, which has not been an option for many people. This means that I had more access to better education, I didn't have to hold a job in high school, and I won't have to pay, take on student loans for going to college. I can also see it in the way that media represents ideals to live up to or ideal ways of life in things like, you know, beauty standards and like, you know, cars to drive and things like that. It's in magazines and songs things like that. So the way that caste affects me negatively, though, may not be as obvious from the get-go, but it definitely affects everyone. Um, One example that Isabel Wilkerson gave in her book was about the baseball player Satchel Paige. He was an amazing baseball player, but he played before the league was integrated. So he wasn't allowed to play with the white players, and his stats weren't taken. So we never really will know how successful he was. Um, And so nobody was able to reap the benefits of his successful career. 
Um, and this, this can be seen in other examples too. We never know what the people, what the missed opportunities of people in the lower caste would be. So we all miss out on those opportunities. That's a great point about how everyone misses out on the opportunities not given to black people. I hadn't thought about that. You mentioned that you were taught different things in school. Can you explain your schooling experience a little bit and how that's affected you? Yes, of course. I'm from the Durham-Chapel Hill area of North Carolina, which is in the South, but it's a relatively liberal area. I went to a public elementary school, which was really large because there were only three elementary schools in the town, and it was a very diverse school. Then I went to a private Quaker school for middle school that was extremely small and very liberal, but it was also very white. Then I went to a prep school in the area for high school that was politically diverse, but it wasn't racially diverse at all. So while I lived in the same area my whole life, I went to three entirely different schools. I took history classes at all of the schools, and all three were very different. Even though Chapel Hill is a very liberal place, the public schools still follow the state curriculum. In North Carolina, fourth grade is when you learn American history. You learn all of the 50 states, you learn about all our parts in both of the world wars, you learn about colonialism, Ellis Island, and the Civil War. I learned all of this through a lens for sure. Um, for example, I learned that colonialism was the white Europeans making friends with the Indians and the Indians showing them how to grow corn. Um, the state rec- curriculum was reformed in, I think, 2009, so I was the very last class in North Carolina um, to learn that the Civil War was less about slavery and more about states' rights. I remember telling my dad kind of what I was learning in school at the time, and um, he went in and argued with my fourth grade teacher, actually, and um, obviously told me that that was not what happened, and I do wonder if that was part of the reason that the very next year I was attending one of the most liberal schools in the state. Um, This was a very different experience because... While my environment was a lot less diverse, the curriculum was focused on truth-telling. In seventh grade, the whole class did a civil rights trip through the South, where we each picked a topic, and then through the class trip, we were supposed to be paying attention and looking for stuff about that topic, and then we would present it to the class at the end. Um, The focus that I chose was young people in the movement, so I was able to learn all about the Children's March in Alabama and the desegregation of schools and the brave kids like Ruby Bridges, who were the first to do it. Then I went to high school where they were only now on the cusp of transitioning to a truth-telling curriculum. Um, A few years before I got there, they implemented a civil rights trip for the junior class too. So that was the same year that most students take AP U.S. history, and that was a very interesting way to start off the year. Um, It was a similar trip to the one that I had taken in middle school. We went to a lot of the same places, but obviously because I had matured, it was a completely different experience for me. I was also on the part of the team that helped implement um, curriculum into the elementary school that was all about the history of Durham, including um, racial housing inequality that exists in our area. That was a big part of the um, whole curriculum, but they were also and they were also offering um, beginning to offer more scholarship money to people of different demographics to try and make the school more diverse. However, all of this was really in the early stages while I was in high school. So and a lot of parents weren't happy with it. There was a lot of um, pushback on all of that. So that was definitely an interesting experience as well. It's interesting to think about your three very different experiences and to think that most young people living in your area only experienced one of those tracks. So even though all of you are the same age and from the same place, your education would have been very differently focused. You used the phrase truth-telling quite a few times in that answer. Can you talk about what that means and why that's so important? I love mysteries. 
I listen to true crime podcasts and I read Agatha Christie mysteries like it's sustenance. In all of my mysteries, you have a set of puzzle pieces that go together, but they don't always make sense when you don't assemble the facts correctly, or if not all of the pieces are there. That's also kind of what the importance of truth-telling is like. You need all of the pieces in order to put together the puzzle. You also have to know how they go together. In the context of our country, it hasn't been understood until now that all of these components assemble to create a caste system. I've reflected on my life and my history classes and all of my social interactions, and I understand that I didn't have all of the pieces to the puzzle. How could I be capable of, of understanding that we live in a caste system if I didn't even understand the discrimination that was going on right in front of my eyes. I mean, there's inequalities all around us and I just really didn't have any idea. So I really do think that there are more good people in this world than there are bad, but if people aren't telling the truth about our country to each other, to themselves, and it's not being taught in our schools, how can we even begin to change the way that our society functions? It's a whole nother thing whether or not people agree on how to change our society or even if they want to change it at all, but we should at least be given all of the facts about what our country looks like, especially to black people and how it's looked for centuries. That truth-telling component is the most important because until we're all on the same page, there will be no moving forward. Is there some sort of truth that has become clear to you through a certain experience that has moved you over the course of this class? Yes, actually, um, there was a moment. This year, um, Martin Luther King Day also happened to be one of the first days of class. And I went to a virtual event that day that had a lot of interesting people speaking. And one of the people who spoke was Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, Bernice King. Um, she's an incredibly impressive woman. And one thing that she talked about was one of her dad's quotes that's been a little controversial lately because it's been a little bit misused. It's a really well-known quote, um, and it goes... The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And she spoke about how even though this quote is really meaningful, it has been used over and over again and has kind of like colored Dr. King's message in an incorrect way. At the time, he was really fighting hard and he was making a lot of people in the country really unhappy, but this quote, along with others, makes it seem that what he's trying to say and what he's trying to do was just tell everyone to be calm, to be happy, that um, don't worry, everything's going to be fine, and the in the long run, justice will be had. Um, and it doesn't really talk about like the fight that we have to put in and how hard we all have to work. So she talked about that, and um, it made me realize that even one of the most influential people in all of history has had his story kind of blurred and twisted so that it's more pleasing to our caste system, so it fits into our caste system better. So Bernice King um, told us that even though that quote does have issues, we shouldn't stop using it. We shouldn't stop believing in it because we do have to have hope. Martin Luther King had co had, had hope. We have to be hope hopeful, but we just don't want to be blind. We want to be faithful and active and not sit back. So um, that was pretty eye-opening to me. And, you know, that truth-telling piece right there about um, making sure that we're not twisting anyone's story, we're telling the full truth and not blurring it over was um, pretty cool to me and pretty important. That's an awesome quote. I love that quote. It is also very hopeful. Do you have hope that a caste system can be dismantled? What would that look like? What would have to happen? So, first of all, I just want to talk about that there's a huge distinction between caste and class. Class is actually okay. 
class is important to the functioning economy. The distinction is that if an economy is set up properly, notice I said if an economy is set up properly and everyone has equal access to support, then class should be fluid. You should be able to move in and out, up and down of class, depending on your job and your financial situation. It shouldn't be a bad thing. It's only about money. It shouldn't be about, you know, people shouldn't in the lower classes shouldn't be looked at as less worthy or less of people or in any way discriminated against. Um, The problem is that when class is decided based upon something other than financial situation, that's the difference between class and caste. It causes discrimination. People are cemented into that position. This is when it becomes a cast, and following the eight pillars that we've talked about throughout our class, you can see where these differences lie. Um, This, however, seems to be unclear to a lot of people, so I just wanted to make sure that I had made that distinction before I explain why I think we could definitely live in a world without caste. I think there could be a United States that doesn't have a caste system because there really isn't a need for the caste system. There's a need for class, a class, you know, that's a functioning economy, but you don't actually need the caste system. Even though people um, of lower caste are often used as scapegoats, we've seen this throughout history, um, and people at the bottom of the top caste would rather be able to put another group beneath them. It might seem that like the caste system is there for a purpose, but there isn't actually a necessity for that caste system. So if we begin to be honest with ourselves as a country and get rid of the systems of oppression that exist in our society, I think that a caste system could get dismantled. I think that it'll take time and that it won't be easy, but I do think that it can be done. And though some people might say that I'm too hopeful um, in thinking that this will be done, um, I'm kind of a history nerd. And so... I look at history for hope and faith. And when you look back at all of human history, it's kind of easy to see that the U.S. is actually a baby. We're so young, and even though um, black people have been oppressed for the entirety of our our country's existence, um, which is far too long, as a country, we're still forming. I think that a lot of people look at the U.S. and the systems that we have in place and how oppressive it is as like this huge Goliath. And it's very complicated and it's woven into who we are as a country, but our country isn't fully done. And it won't be easy, but the the U.S. is kind of like a baby Goliath in the sense that we're still growing and in this grand scheme of world history, we're not even close to fully formed. You can see it in the changes in the demographic makeup of our country. It's truly a melting pot, and our population is becoming less and less white, and we're all stirring together. It's it's proven. So it's going to take hard work to form our country into a just society free of caste, but I really do think our country is much further from being formed than many people think. And so it's not finished, and we all have a role and making it into that country that we want to see. So if we all do our part, and I'm really hopeful that our caste, that our caste system can be dismantled. And it will be dismantled. Is there anything in particular that you think all of us can be doing to help make progress? Yes. So this is the big, complicated question. What can we do? How can we make this country what we want it to be? I'm going to backtrack just like a little bit and go back to the truth telling that I was talking about earlier. And over this course, we've compared the U.S. to Nazi Germany in a lot of interesting ways. And one way that I think we could 
look at post-Nazi Germany for help in this way is um, how they've recovered from it. They don't look away and pretend that it doesn't exist. They don't smooth it over and tell their children that it wasn't as bad as it looked. They do tell the truth. They came together and they acknowledge what happened and they're trying to heal. The U.S. has got to start being honest. We have to reform our education systems first. We have to believe in the 1619 Project curriculum. That way we can all understand what's really going on here and work together to find a solution. That's a really wide-scale solution, though, and that's going to take time. So to answer your question about what you can do and what I can do, you have to just lead from your seat. We're all given a platform and a perspective, and we all have to be better about using it. We come from different backgrounds and different perspectives, and each one of us is part of a network of communities that we hold influence in. We have to use those. There was actually a great moment in a movie that I watched this semester, um, One Night in Miami. Um, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke are all in a hotel room together, and Malcolm X gets really mad at Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke is explaining that he's opening doors and paving the way for black artists to become more mainstream in the music industry. He's performing in places he would never have been allowed in, and he believes that he's breaking down the, the barriers of racism. But that's not enough for Malcolm X. He's furious at Sam Cooke because Sam Cooke is able to grab the ears of white people, and they listen to him, and he has a huge audience, and all he's talking about uh, is, oh, my darling, my darling, I love you. You know, like, it's, it's not deep. And so Malcolm X wants him to use his platform to say something more meaningful. And I loved this because even though we all realize how important Malcolm X was to the civil rights movement, he understood that Sam Cooke had access to a group of people that would never have listened to him. So I think that's really powerful because we can all learn from that. Even though I may not have the ears of the whole country, I may not be able to affect everyone, I do have the ears of some people. For example, I have the ears of my Republican Italian family of about 25. They live in Queens and in New York and Charlotte in North Carolina, and I can talk to them and have conversations with them and help them to understand. I even swung the the vote of my uncle in the 2020 election. So you can see that, you know, even though it's not the whole country, it's 25 people, and I can make a change in that group. I also have access, access to my predominantly white sorority. We can talk about how to make Greek life on campus more diverse and work to implement diversity inclusion training in our chapter requirements, which we have begun to do this year. It may not seem like the most important change to happen in this country, but it's something that I can do. It's where I sit. It's something that I'm capable of doing. So if we all just reach out to the people closest to us and work hard where we can for what we can do, I, I think we'll begin to see results. Wow, wonderful. And on that note, I think we have reached the end of our interview. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Mallory. Thank you so much for having me.